This is a podcast for Journal of Applied Ecology, a British Ecological Society publication. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Applied in 5, where we discuss ecological research in an accessible, bite-sized format of around about 5 to 15 minutes. Today I'm joined by Hilary Smith, who is here to discuss her latest research entitled Seaweeding, Manual Removal of Macroalgae Facilitates Rapid Coral Recovery. Let's get started. Okay, so could you give us a bit of background about yourself, uh, maybe what you like to do in your spare time and how you ended up getting into ecology? Yeah, sure. So I I didn't have a direct path at all. Um, I guess part of the background to me is that um, I had family on a small Caribbean island when I was growing up. So they moved there in the 60s. And so I had family that lived on this tiny little island and grew up visiting them. Um, so obviously took an interest in snorkeling and reefs, but I never thought that it could be a job. Um, and then as I, I grew up, my passion was kind of more towards like the arts side of thing. And so I pursued a degree in fine arts in the States and um, the GFC happened while I was doing my undergrad degree. So I realized like probably not the most useful degree to graduate with a double major in painting and sculpture. So um, (laughs) I switched into fashion design, um, which has like a clear job at the end of things. Mm -hmm. And yeah, finished my degree, moved to New York, got a job in fashion, worked a couple different fashion design jobs for about five years in New York City, Um, hated every single one of them and decided it was time for a change. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I thought about what I guess what I wanted out of a career and look, some of the things I wanted are fairly selfish. I wanted to be able to travel to pretty places. I wanted to go outside, Um, but I also knew I wanted to use my brain um, and be a little bit less destructive with my career. So fashion industry is very destructive. And so I did a a year um, bridging course in kind of ecology, evolutionary biology and discovered I had a passion for genetics and specifically for coral genetics. And yeah, then I moved to Australia um, to pursue a master's at James Cook University, finished that and then got a job as a research assistant. And I've just been promoted up the chain. So yeah, I've been really, really lucky combination of just busting my butt and, (laughs) and yeah, I guess right place, right time. Yeah. So yeah. Very like indirect route into ecology. <laughs> I think one thing I've learned from from doing a few of these podcasts is there just seems to be no kind of correct route into anything. It's very much people come at things from their own angles, and I think yours is definitely one of the almost more interesting ways actually I've seen to go into ecology. <laughs> it's unusual. I know that for sure. Everyone's always surprised that you know there's this dichotomy of the right brain left brain yeah um how can you be both an artist and a scientist um but for me I find it there's a lot of crossover between working in the sciences and working in the arts there's creativity in in like finding problems and how to tackle those problems and designing experiments just like you would design you know garment or or whatever the case may be yeah um wait so yeah I I think there's lots of similarities but I understand that it's also a pretty unusual pathway. <laughs> I did a geography degree, so some kind of aspects of ecology in it, um, but I, I ended up in the end going down more the human geography route. 
um, and I ended up doing my master's in cultural geography. So I do understand what you mean in terms of the two different sides actually linking quite a strange way, but it's it ends up working. Yeah. Leading on from that, would you be able to briefly summarise the research in your paper and how it advances the field? Yeah, sure. So my paper is um, about the interactions between corals and macroalgae or seaweed. And I tend to use those terms interchangeably, macroalgae and seaweed, but I want to specify it's not seagrass. So um, as our climate is changing, we're expecting corals to continue dying off, fortunately, because of climate change. And when corals die, macroalgae tends to colonize more quickly. And once it's there, it has stronger competitive interactions with corals and corals tend to lose. So as part of that, I guess there's this increased focus worldwide to develop methods to conserve and rehabilitate reefs that are um, going through these drastic losses in, in corals. But most of them are really high tech. So here in Australia, there's a lot of research going into like cloud brightening and like robotics and engineering to, to kind of provide solutions to increase reef resilience. But I mean, if you think about macroalgae or seaweed, it's just like a weed. So could we use something low tech to manage it? And if you remove it, could the corals then bounce back? So that's kind of the theoretical background. And Mm -hmm. I guess another part of it is because it's low tech, we can use citizen scientists. So my paper is the first three years of a long-term study um, that's still going on the effects of removing seaweed manually from areas of coral reef that are degraded. And all of that seaweed is removed using citizen scientists. And what we found is that after three years of successive removals, so two to three times per year, we would remove the seaweed, found um, up to a 600% increase in coral cover. So super fast, like really visible results. And as part of the study, we've also found all these other like benefits, like during coral bleaching, if there's no seaweed, the corals recover faster. And we also find um, lots more coral babies will settle on the reef when there's no seaweed around. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing results. Yeah, I never really covered coral, um, surprisingly enough, but um, that was a really good crash course on it, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I think most people, you know, they know, they understand it's important and sadly that, you know, it's all decreasing, but it's hearing that it's really, really interesting. And I think your research has got that very clear applied focus as well. Yeah, totally. And I think that was, that's something that I really value is like that it can be very easily achieved just with lots of hands and it doesn't cost that much to scale up with people that are interested in taking care of their own environment. You have lots of people that have an interest in that and they have hands and that's all you need really to implement this is like an interest, hands and ability to swim. Yeah. (laughs) Pretty crucial, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That probably leads on actually really perfectly to the next question which is what did you enjoy most about conducting the research? Did you have any surprising results, funny experiences along the way, anything like that? Yeah. So I guess this is this project is only one of my many jobs at work, but I think what I enjoyed the most was actually interacting with the general public that came to help 
do the weeding. So we run it as kind of like a week-long expedition and there's evening lectures and people with no background in science come and join us and kind of learn about the reef, the threats, and what, what research is happening to try to manage those threats as well as more actively manage corals. But you get people from all different backgrounds. So we've had people that work in the mining industry. We've had um, teachers. We've had we've had children. So we've had um, like 10-year-olds come along and oh, wow. they just have the best time. So I guess getting to interact with diverse people is was a real highlight of this particular project. But also, I'm very lucky that I get to go diving for work. So um, <laughs> you see lots of amazing things obviously when you're spending that much time in the field just a few weeks ago we're at the end of whale season here in northern australia and had a team out doing some surveys and there was just this baby whale breaching for about 30 minutes like maybe five meters away from the boat so really amazing just experiences with wildlife yeah um, you don't get out of other jobs yeah it sounds like it almost allows you to kind of feed two passions at the same time which sounds really nice <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm very spoiled I don't want to pay to go like recreational diving anymore <laughs> don't blame you it's crazy to think about actually because I'm grown up kind of around London never done anything like that at all maybe that's something to add to my bucket list to try and see the world a bit yeah well welcome to come join anytime <laughs> <laughs> sounds amazing <laughs> um so you mentioned earlier that this is ongoing research. Would you be able to tell us a bit about what you're working on now? Yeah, so I think one of the really important things about this research is, you know, reefs don't work in like the same cycles as funding. So it's really rare to have something run for more than, say, three or four years here in Australia, because that's kind of the funding cycles. Mm. But we're really lucky. Um, my team and I have have this ongoing funding arrangement where we've been able to continue the exact same research through time. So we're still doing the seaweeding two or three times a year with our citizen scientists and still doing surveys on the coral cover. So what we've seen since the completion of the first three years, which are shown in the, in the publication, is that the coral cover keeps increasing. So it's now almost at 60% coral cover, which at the start of the study, it was only about 5% coral cover. So it, it's like off the charts, um, just continuing to get better and better. Wow. But that said, we are expecting a really, really hot summer here in Australia, and we're expecting corals to bleach. So I guess a little bit of background there is when the temperatures of the seawater gets really hot, um, corals have this algae that lives inside their tissue. Um, and when it gets really hot, the relationship between the corals and the algae breaks down. And so the corals spit out that algae, and essentially they starve to death. So they don't necessarily die immediately if they lose their algae in what's called coral bleaching. But if it's extended, then they will die. We're expecting a mass episode of that this coming summer. And so um, one of the things we're hoping to look at if that eventuates, which we hope it doesn't, but if it does, we have some interesting research questions. <laughs> we're hoping to look at um, coral juveniles. So how do the first babies that settle on the reef, how do they cope with bleaching? Mm -hmm. um, so we'll be looking at, I guess, the difference between survival of babies during bleaching, where we've removed the seaweed and where we haven't. So kind of two different stressors on coral babies and how they might survive those. Yeah, 
Wow. I think, well, like you said, obviously you, you hope that the, the mass bleaching doesn't happen, but I think it, it does go to show how ecology, it is never ending, essentially. There's there's always more questions generated. Yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit odd, isn't it? But um, all of these stressors happening around the world do pose really interesting questions. It's unfortunately the world we live in, and it provides opportunities for really interesting questions to be answered. What would you say is the best thing about being an ecologist? Yeah, um, I mean, for me, it's it's those things that I was looking for when I transitioned careers. It's that I get to be outside, um, I get to use my brain, and I get to now develop solutions for pressing issues in our world. Yeah. <laughs> if we flip the last question on its head, is there anything you'd say maybe not necessarily the worst thing about being an ecologist, but things you feel could maybe be improved in the field? Yes, definitely. Um, <laughs> maybe I will use the word worst. Um, <laughs> the worst thing for me is I hate how much time I have to spend writing applications for funding, so much effort into designing projects and filling out budgets and then they don't get funded. And it's so frustrating, like how much of my time is has to be dedicated to that um, when there's limited people in the world that are pursuing these things. Isn't their brain power kind of best spent on actually doing the research? In my mind, anyways, I, I would much rather like be working on how to solve climate change rather than applying for funding to be able to work on how to solve climate change, you know? I don't know how that can be improved. Because um, I, I do understand, like, the process around funding, and mm-hmm. I appreciate that, that like, competitive funding in particular can really drive people to come up with innovative ideas. But the process as an early career researcher in particular is highly frustrating to me. Maybe other people have, you know, love that process and find it really rewarding and, and more power to them if that's the case. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're, um, yeah, you're definitely not the the only person that's, that's spoken about funding. So yeah. yeah, it's like you said, it's something that can understand, like, obviously why it needs to be done. People can't just fund these things out of their own pocket but perhaps there's something to be said in making the process more definitely more streamlined um just a bit more accessible for people I think yeah and I've noticed that some funding organizations are now kind of doing it into calls so they have like the initial call for proposals and they they want like maybe a one-page summary of what your project's about and then they'll invite the ones they like the best to then submit a full proposal. Yeah. I guess that kind of saves you some time rather than developing a full proposal up front. So I appreciate that like some organizations mm. are moving towards that. Yeah. Definitely food for thought anyway, in terms of how, how it can be approached. And I think that actually is yeah. pretty spot on for the last question. <laughs> Do you have <laughs> one piece of advice yeah. uh, for someone in your field? And, this can be, you mentioned obviously early career research, but it can be any kind of stage in their career, just anything really that you feel could help someone out who's maybe listening or even someone who might be starting a degree in ecology and just interested to get more involved. Yeah, I think um, 
I mean, this, this is probably like widespread knowledge already, but just like take every opportunity that comes your way. You know, I thought that when I switched into science from arts, I was really passionate about genetics and kind of pure science. Um, it didn't have an applied angle at all. And then I took this job and it kind mm -hmm. of morphed into this ecology thing. And I find so much more satisfaction out of that. And I'm so glad that I wasn't stubborn in my ways and being like, no, I'm a geneticist. And just taking, yeah, taking every opportunity. I think when I was transitioning careers, I just, I was like, yes, everything, everything, <laughs> everything. Um, so I ended up, you know, doing histology of fish gonads. Wow. And um, I did like coding for um, an online photo database of coral bleaching maps and like just acquired as many skills as I could which was beneficial to me in finding employment as a young scientist, but also beneficial in refining what I'm interested in and what I want to do, where I want to spend my effort. Yeah. I guess the other thing is just be kind. I think there's so much competition in this field, or in, in lots of fields, but science ten tends to have a lot of competition and it doesn't need to be that way. We can just be collaborative mm -hmm. and be nice to each other and, like amazing things can come from yeah. that I understand what you mean it's kind of not not keeping I suppose your own knowledge as well your own skills under lock and key and being able to apply that to, to different scenarios and research projects there's been a lot more recently that's like classified as more interdisciplinary and I think it's just recognizing that people have different strengths in like different fields and when you can when you can collaborate more I think you can often produce really strong results yeah and it's more fun if you have you know a group of fun colleagues that you get to go in the field together with that that's so much better than if you fostered a, a competitive atmosphere where you know everyone's safeguarding their skills or or their knowledge <laughs> i see that changing already in the field but ideally it will continue to get better and um yeah, I think everyone should just be nice to each other and say yes to everything. <laughs> but that's easier said than done sometimes. <laughs> Very good advice. Yeah, let's hope. I think there's a there's a good future ahead for all this to keep improving. Yeah. That's brings us to the end of the podcast recording. <laughs> <laughs> thanks very much for joining me of course yeah thank you for having me thanks for the opportunity to share 